welcome to episode 108 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. After a lengthy digression, I want to return this episode to our narrative arc that's following Mao and the Red Army. Where we last left Mao in episode 100, it was January 14, 1929, and he was leading his forces out of the Jingongshan base area in what was a combination retreat and surprise attack. The communist armed forces in the Jingong Mountain base area had been reduced to a pretty dismal state by an economic blockade, and Guomindong forces had surrounded the base in preparation for an assault. So, when Mao left the Jingongshan on January 14th with his force of around 3,600 people, he was both hoping to get the jump on the Guomindong by surprising them in advance of the Guomindong's own planned offensive, but also he was planning on leading his troops off to find another base of operations which would not be as easy for the enemy to subject to economic strangulation. Now, before we get started, this episode we're going to see Mao and the 4th Red Army marching across a large part of southern Jiangxia province. I'm going to be using place names to trace the movements of the army and talk about what happened in different places as we follow the progress of the army. I've heard from some listeners that it can be hard to find good maps of China to follow along with the narrative when we're following the army's movements from place to place. Definitely, Google Maps can be pretty hard to use for that purpose. I've gone ahead and linked to a pretty good map of Jiangsha province in the show notes and also included it as the episode artwork for people who want to follow along, uh, although I expect the um, the artwork uh, will be too small to really use inside your uh, whatever app you're using to listen to, to, to listen to this podcast on. Anyways, uh, that might not be a great solution if you're driving or performing chores or uh, working while you're listening, uh, but it's there if you want to look. And as long as we're on the subject of the difficulty of finding good maps of China and why you can't just plug place names into Google or Apple Maps and get good results, I may as well explain why that is. Uh, now, you might assume that the difficulty in finding good maps has to do with the language differences between English and Chinese. Uh, including inconsistencies in the transliteration of Chinese place names, as well as differences in naming conventions uh, between the two cultures and also over time in China. That is one major factor, to be sure. And on top of that, that uh, there's the issue that many places that were important historically have been dwarfed by new cities uh, and other geographical units that were insignificant during the time discussed in the podcast. Uh, for example, uh, I taught for a semester at an American university with a branch campus in the Chinese city of Zhuhai, uh, right on the border with Macau. Back in 1950, it was a village of 3,000 people, but now it has a population nearing 2 million. And there are a lot of places like that in China, and uh, the growth of these new cities uh, can then overrun or swallow up old villages that might have been significant uh, historically in some way uh, in the 1920s and 30s, but which now can be hard to find on maps. Um, but actually, probably the biggest reason why it's hard to easily find good maps of China online is because it's illegal for anyone to make maps of China unless they have special authorization from the government to do so. And in fact, the Chinese government considers accurate maps of China's geography to be a state secret. 
As a result, maps of China intentionally include inaccuracies, including forcing online map services to include algorithms that introduce random offsets um, so that where you're going on the map isn't actually necessarily uh, correspond to where those places are, uh, you know, literally, you know, physically on the planet Earth. Um, the result of all of this is that uh, not only is a service like Google Maps uh, way less useful for looking up locations in China, uh, but also when you have a situation where, for example, British geology students got arrested for mapping fault lines, there are just going to be a lot less people making maps and thus less maps available. Uh, anyways, if you want to learn more about China's security laws regarding map mapping, map making, uh, I included some links in the show notes. Um, now, uh, back to the fourth Red Army. Here is how Judah remembered the departure of the army from the Jinggongshan on January 14th. Quote, At dawn, the column of gaunt and ragged men and women began creeping single file along the jagged crest of this mountain spur that connected Jinggongshan with the mountain range that runs southward along the Jiangshahunan border. The stones and peaks were worn to slippery smoothness by no one knows how many eons of fierce winds, rains, and snow. Snow lay in pockets, and an icy wind lashed the bodies of the column that inched forward, crawling over huge boulders and hanging on to one another to avoid slipping into the black chasms below. End quote. That night, they surprised and wiped out a battalion of Guomindang troops in Dafen, in Suichuan County. With this victory, the communists broke through the blockade and began what would be only the first of many forced marches that they would make over the following months, covering about 45 kilometers daily. They marched south engaging landlord militias which were easily dispatched along the route, and looting food, clothing, and other necessities from landlord homes along the way. Around January 17th, they occupied the county seat of Dayu County. Here, the communists stopped to regroup and to try to mobilize the masses in the area. At some point during the second half of January, Mao wrote an interesting short piece titled Notice Issued by the Fourth Army Headquarters of the Red Army, which was intended to quickly convey a sense of the politics of the communists, the political situation in China, and the need for revolution uh, in a popular form. Uh, because the only respite from marching and fighting that lasted for more than a day was during the communists' three days occupying the Dayu County seat, I think it's most likely that he composed this piece during that time. It was written in the form of a poem, with each line composed of four Chinese characters in order to make it easy to remember. Uh, I'm going to read it out here uh, to give you a sense of how Mao was trying to appeal to the basic masses in southern Jiangsha at this time. The aim of the Red Army is democratic revolution. Our Western Jiangsha First Army's reputation has spread far and wide. The present plan is to move forward by divisions. Be they officers or foot soldiers, all must obey commands, be fair in dealings with the people, thus proving ourselves trustworthy. Wanton burning and killing must be strictly forbidden. All over the nation, oppression is unbearable. The workers and the peasants endure bitter sufferings. Local bullies and bad gentry and tyrannizing over villages and towns. High interest and heavy taxes rouse everyone's anger. 
white army soldiers go hungry and cold. The petty bourgeoisie pays extremely heavy taxes. The more imported goods there are, the harder it is to sell domestic ones. As for imperialism, who is there that doesn't hate it? The Guomindong Bandit Party is completely reactionary. It says one thing and means another. They can't be too strong. Chang, Gui, Feng, and Yan, uh, those are the four main factions of the Guomindong, uh, which had uh, all united to finish the Northern Expedition and conquer Beijing in 1928, but now had split into uh, different uh, rival factions. Anyways, back to the poem. Share a bed, but not their dreams. Conflicts have arisen among them. The warlords will meet their fate. Food is what alleviates, alleviates hunger. Medicine is what cures diseases. What the Communist Party advocates is exceedingly just. The fields of the landlords should be given to the peasants to till. Debts need not be paid back. Rents need not be paid. An increase in workers' wages must be borne by the bosses. Eight hours of work a day is just the right amount of time. The way the troops are treated urgently requires improvement. In distributing the land, soldiers are entitled to a share. Enemy officers and their soldiers must be allowed to switch sides. What they've done in the past will not be held against them. The method of progressive taxation is by far the most suitable. All exorbitant taxes and levies must be thoroughly swept away. As for merchants in the cities, they have hoarded bit by bit. As long as they are obedient, the rest does not matter. The treatment meted out to foreigners must be exceedingly strict. Their factories and their banks must be confiscated and taken over. Foreign investments and foreign debts all are declared null and void. Foreign troops and foreign ships are not allowed to enter our borders. Overthrowing the big powers will bring joy to everyone's heart. Overthrowing the warlords means a thorough purging of evil. Unifying the whole of China is reason for the nation to rejoice. As for the Manchus, Mongols, Hui, and Tibetans, they will determine their own statutes. The Guomindang government is nothing but a pack of scoundrels. Uniting to get rid of them, we thoroughly purge the corrupt regime. The workers and peasants of the entire nation are swift as the wind and powerful as thunder. The day when we will seize political power is not far away. The success of revolution depends on the popular masses alone. Let this be proclaimed on every hand, and everyone be roused to action. Commander of the Army, Zhu De, Party Representative, Mao Zedong. So this short uh, poem could be memorized by uh, propagandists uh, with the Red Army and who went out and talked to peasants along the way when that was possible, like... Uh, like what the Red Army was trying to do during its three days occupying Dayu County. And it kind of quickly encapsulated a, a lot of the political positions of the Communist Party. Anyways, the communists could only hang on for three days in Dayu. The Guomindang was in hot pursuit, and the communists were at a disadvantage. The Guomindang approached stealthily, aided by local landlord militias, while the communists were without the networks that they had been able to rely upon in the areas surrounding the Jingangshan. On January 20th, the Guomindang attacked with little warning, and Mao and Zhu were forced to give battle in unfavorable conditions. 
The Guomindang inflicted heavy casualties on the communists, killing hundreds, according to Judah's account. The communists retreated, first southwest into Guangdong province and then angling east to cross uh, southern Jiangxia. Uh, this forced march retreat did not move in a straight line. Mao and Zhu adopted the tactic of what they called circling around or spiraling. The length of the distance covered in these spirals is actually so large that you can follow it on the province-level map of Jiangxia. For the next 10 days, the communists made a forced march first south into and around Nanshong in Guangdong, then angled back northeast up, up to Xinfeng, back in Jiangxia, and then southeast from there past Anyuan and Shunwu. Uh, this is a different Anyuan uh, than the famous mining center in northern Jiangxia, um, in case that's confusing. Um, the purpose of the spiraling tactic was not just to shake off the enemy. Rather, the idea was to use the tactic to string out or spread out the enemy's forces, dispersing them so that they could be outmaneuvered, and so that the communists could then rely on their own speed and maneuverability to concentrate their own forces and wipe out isolated portions of the enemy army and regain the initiative when the opportunity arrived. Although, it would take some time for that to happen. Initially, though, the communists were finding this very difficult, especially since they could not rely on getting intelligence and aid from the local population the way they had back near the Jigongshan base area. As Mao later reported in his March 20th, 1929 report to the Central Committee, quote, All along the way were places without party organizations and without mass support, and the pursuing troops followed us closely with the help of the reactionary militia. It was truly a most difficult time for our army, end quote. And the physical conditions of the march were very harsh as well. Although they were in southern China, which tends to be mild in the winter, they were up in the mountains, so there was a lot of ice and snow, and it was really cold. The communists debated whether or not it made sense to split up and disperse their forces in order to better deal with the harsh conditions, but decided against it, as they felt that small groups could more easily be isolated and destroyed by the enemy, which, after all, was how they hoped to be able to eventually turn the tables on the Guomindang forces pursuing them. Despite the communist spiraling tactics and long forced marches, the Guomindang remained hot on the heels of the communists, and major engagements were fought which ended in defeats for the communists at Xinfeng, Anyuan, and Shunwu. During one of these battles, Judah's wife, Wu Ruolan, was captured. We met her back in episode 81, when Zhu met her while occupying Leyang during the South Hunan Uprising. When she met Zhu, she had been a 25-year-old peasant activist who had gone to teacher's college with one of Mao Zedong's cousins and, along with a number of young women at this teacher's college, joined the Communist Party during the May 30th movement back in 1925. After her capture, uh, she was beheaded, and her severed head was sent back to her native city of Changsha, where the city fathers mounted it on a pole in uh, one of the main streets, presumably as a, a deterrent to uh, other young women who might follow in her footsteps. At Jensha village in Shunwu County, the Guomindong managed to sneakily encircle the communists during the night and then launch a surprise attack at dawn. Mao and Zhu, who had been up late working on strategy, were asleep in bed when the attack began. 
While the communists managed to break out of the encirclement, it was a chaotic scramble. And in the process, Mao was separated from Zhu and from his bodyguards. Uh, however, the retreating communists managed to outpace the Guomindong and reunite their forces while retreating further east and further up into the mountains along the border with Fujian, uh, near where the provinces of Jiangsha, Fujian, and Guangdong all come together. The communists arrived in that border area on February 1st and had one day of rest to collect themselves before they got word that the Guomindong was headed for them. On this day, they had a meeting and made the decision to head back north with the idea of eventually making it back to the town of Donggu, uh, to the southeast of Jian, where there was a party organization and mass support, and which was close enough to the Jingangshan that they could get back in touch with their comrades there. So, when they got word that the Guomindong was advancing on them, off the communists went again, this time retreating north along the border with Fujian, with the idea of later veering northwest toward Donggu. At this point, the Guomindong made a costly military mistake. Feeling that the communists had been basically defeated after routing them in Shunwu County, the commander of the Guomindong troops sent off a cable reporting his victory, which read like this, quote, since the heavy losses inflicted by my brigade in the vicinity of Jitanyu of Shunwu County, the Zhu Mao forces have been fleeing in panic. End quote. He thought that all he had before him was the final sweeping up of an already defeated enemy. But the communists moved north at too fast of a pace for most of the Guomindong troops. And so, after a week of marching, when they arrived in and occupied the town of Dabodi, uh, which you can find on the road between Ruijin and Ningdu on the map of Jiangsha, on February 9th, only two Guomindong regiments remained close in hot pursuit of the communists. In the vicinity of Dabodi was a gorge several kilometers long with dense forests and high mountains. It was an ideal site for an ambush. Mao called an enlarged meeting of the front committee in Dabodi, and an ambush was planned for the next day. On February 10th, in a maneuver known as a pocket battle formation, the main force of the 4th Red Army waited in hiding along the sides of the road, while a small force lured the pursuing Guomindong regiments to the ambush site. Meanwhile, a force led by Lin Biao had marched about 15 kilometers during the night so as to be in the rear of the Guomindong troops. In the exceptionally brutal battle that followed, which lasted until the afternoon of the following day, the Guomindong regiments were entirely wiped out. While the Red Army had the advantage of surprise and position when they attacked the Guomindong, they were tired, poorly fed and clothed, and lacked ammunition. Judah led the charge, and Mao, who normally did not fight and did not typically carry a gun, picked up a gun and led a guard platoon in charging an enemy position. As Chen Yi wrote in his September 1st, 1929 report to the Central Committee, quote, In this battle, our army, after repeated defeats, staked everything on this last resort to destroy the strong enemy. After running out of ammunition and supplies, officers and men used tree branches, stones, and empty rifles in a bloody struggle and won final victory. This is the most glorious battle since the founding of the Red Army. End quote. According to Judah's account, the communist troops began the battle with only 20 rounds of ammunition each, 
so it soon devolved into hand-to-hand combat using the weapons mentioned by Chen Yi. The battle was a turning point for the Red Army, after which its morale was raised and it regained the initiative. According to Mao's March 20th Central Committee report, the communists captured over 200 rifles, six amphibious machine guns, and a large number of enemy troops. Judah reported that he selected a hundred poor peasants from among the enemy troops who had been captured and asked them to join the Red Army. The rest of the prisoners of war, uh, more than 700 soldiers, were released because, quote, they were old mercenaries and opium smokers. We didn't want such men, end quote. Four years later, during the summer of 1933, Mao returned to the site of this battle and composed a poem uh, in commemoration of that battle. Uh, it seems uh, seems like rather than uh, wait till 1933, I think this is probably a good time to read out that poem. It goes like this. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Who is dancing in the void, twirling this colored sash? After the rain, the sun slants back. Passes and mountains are dotted with passage, with patches of azure. That year, a fierce battle raged here. Bullet holes have scored the village walls. Thus adorned, these passes and mountains today seem fairer still. All right. Um, that's it for this episode. We'll uh, pick up with the progress of the newly victorious Red Army in the wake of the Battle of Dabodi next episode. Until then, be well. 